0: good day everyone. I've been waiting for this session uh, the whole week uh, to talk again with uh, Dean Crowers. He has a very special place in our heart here in Indiana as the last keynote speaker when it was Indiana AFER. So he spoke and then we decided we had to retire the name of the 100-year uh, organization and come up with shape. So Dean, welcome back to Indiana.
1: It's absolutely fantastic to be back and good memory lane. You just put me in there. I remember that moment very uh, distinctly when you shifted names and I love the name In Shape. How can you not?
0: Yeah, we do. We love it. And, uh, um, you know, so you came and you talked about physical literacy as kind of uh, the gateway to active participation back then. And, and I want to go back there uh, because you really kind of started that conversation and people have been talking about physical literacy kind of putting the jacket on, trying to get more comfortable with it, trying to figure it out and, and that sort of thing. And uh, so this is kind of maybe going to be a refresher, especially in this new world about where is physical literacy fit and where's it going moving forward and that sort of thing. And so you're the kind of the physical literacy guy to some people, but mm. to other people, you're the clown guy. <laughs> you're the circus guy. Sure. So
1: g- give us a little bit of your background. Why, why are you the circus guy? Well, I work in the high performance uh, circus industry in Canada, and United States. Um, and I'm the scientific director at the Circus Research Institute, of which there is one. And it is very well funded here in Canada because we of course have all the circus companies that are um, working. And I study circus. I came from the high performance sport world in my uh, private life And I went into the circus world because they're the most physically literate people that I can work with. And studying really physically literate people um, and helping them out, of course, has been very beneficial for me learning more about my favorite topic of physical literacy. So that's why I work in the circus world. And uh, I do research and practice there. And I try to take the secrets that they have in circus and bring them back to physical education to sport, to recreation and other uh, physical activity providers. And so th- that's why I work in the circus world. And then I'm a university professor and been that for 32 years. And I study, my lab is entirely devoted to physical literacy and uh, I don't just research it, we practice it. So I'm in the trenches. I'm in schools, I'm, I'm doing lesson plans and uh, I work with about seven different countries uh, directly on this matter and uh, trying to solve some of the world's problems using physical literacy as a vehicle of change.
0: Well, we first met, I think it was in Boston when you were the keynote, not just for the state, but uh, when you were the national keynote speaker for Shape America. And I know people know you as a circus guy. I use the word clown because one of the things you said about physical literacy back then was that in this area, they taught you to find your shoes, yes. you find what you like, you know, to grow in your shoes and to use your shoes. So I, I remember that as kind of a way to think about physical literacy, but uh, you know, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah,
1: I mean, that's a great uh, analogy by my, my, the director of the program that I'm in, in Montreal, Patrice Silbertin, And he, it's interesting in the circus world, and I think it's very analogous to what we really want in our hearts in phys ed, is that we want to help kids find their shoes, which is finding a passion for movement in our society, wherever that is, whether that's sport, recreation, maybe a physically active uh, job like a firefighter, blah, blah and equip them with the necessary physical capacities and psychological and social capacities of that child so they can move in our culture in the way that they want, passionately. And uh, helping kids find their shoes is good and then they find them and then we then metaphorically help them grow, get better in their shoes. (laughs) And then they find a way when they graduate to use them, whether that's just fitness pursuits in your life later on Uh, or whether that's working in a uh, profession where you are very physical, uh, to being a sporting participant or just recreational pursuits. So I think anybody um, in the phys ed world truly believes that that's what our intent is to do. And uh, we get confused, I think, a lot about being pushed by the physical activity people, Uh, who really want all of us to be more physically active, which I agree with. But they tell us we should do that so we don't get disease. And that's true. There's zero doubt about that. But the telling people with your wagging finger, become a sweaty mess, Mm -hmm. and then you won't get disease. Well, that really doesn't work on kids. And uh, doesn't work on adults. If you have a heart attack, sure, you get busy with being exercising. But... It's, it's not the reason to do it for fear of getting disease. We want to establish the right reasons, grow the shoes the right way, so people love movement and do it for the right reasons. And even more importantly, that as they change through life, they can go from one activity that they love to another to another and have the confidence to do so. So I think in this day and age, phys ed is... Being told, hey, we're partly responsible for making physically active people, and I'm about that, but not for the wrong reasons. So, the foundation I'm here about is if we make physically literate kids, we grow physical literacy in kids, they then will intrinsically want to participate in movement uh, opportunities in our society and participate and be safe as possible, as safe as adequately safe, not surplus. And so, I think. for me, uh, physical literacy and growing people is a synonymous statement. And I think phys ed in its best manifestations is doing that. And the game is really just to keep quality improvement in phys ed so that we can capture all kids uh, and and put them on a journey to being, you know, movement enriched for life.
0: Well, I, I like this uh, concept or this vision that you have of the outcome of, and I've heard you refer to it before as as a characteristic of an ideal citizen. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you know physical literacy, your passion is there. Obviously, uh, your job is pretty safe. You know, if we talk about reading literacy, we have a you know a ninety plus percent uh, um, success rate. But in physical literacy, we're probably a lot lower mm-hmm. than that. So you know, uh, how how do you keep going? Or you know. Uh, where are we making progress, uh, or where do you think the opportunity is for progress?
1: Well, yeah, there's lots. Um, what's happened since I was last, uh, visiting you, uh, has been a large, a good number of diamonds, I call them, have been created around the world, um, where there is no physical literacy enriched community yet. There are many communities trying to become physical literacy enriched, and what does that mean? We now have ideas to that. And part of that becomes a physical literacy enriched school, not just a phys ed program. And what does that look like, and we can talk about that. But what we've been able to do in the last few years is really create a bunch of diamonds. And they're all over the place, and they're examples of physical literacy-enriched design, physical literacy-enriched school, physical literacy-enriched programming, um, physical literacy-enriched resources. And these diamonds exist. And what's happening now is now communities are looking at these diamonds and saying, well, let's try to assemble these so we get the beautiful diamond necklace. And we can say finally that there is a physical literacy-enriched community. And then hopefully that spreads to a physical literacy-enriched culture, which we need. So some success stories have been in the school front. So now we talk about physical literacy in and at schools. And we look at a school by identifying the movement opportunities at the school. So there's going to school, there's coming, leaving school. And the physical activity people call that active transport. But the physical literacy people say, mm, we think about that slightly differently. But also many children from kindergarten to you know grade six go to school and just prior to the bell ringing and going in, that's a really communal time for kids to socially interact with each other. So it's not just on the way, but it's right as they emerge, when they get out for recess, when they get out for lunch recess, when they maybe get out for a, a, an outdoor class perhaps then there's phys ed, then there's school trips, then there's transit in the hallways, right? The hallways are movement opportunities, not just the gymnasium. And so if you look at all the movement opportunities at a school, what principals often do is they go, oh, get physical activity in my school. And they pick one of the 10 and they do it and they go, none, no, sorry. I am very sorry, but." To get a physical literacy enriched rich school, we need these 10 things happening. So high quality phys ed, daily phys ed, um, high quality recess, not run by phys ed, high quality interscholastic sport, high quality intramural sport. If you don't have a physical activity opportunity for everybody in your school, you are not inclusive. So it cannot be just for the athletes. It has to be for people who don't want to do sport, but be physically active, like in the performance arts, for instance. It could be for people who want to be recreational, but not in a competitive setting. So if you think about a school, is there a movement opportunity for all levels of ability and all levels of interest in your school? That's a mighty lofty goal, but that's one that I subscribe to, and that's what physical literacy says, inclusive by design. So I think, we now have better examples of those 10 movement opportunities in schools, a diamond in each. No school has all 10 going. I've not visited a single school where they have all 10 checked off. But I've had gone to many schools and created, helped create diamonds in each one of those categories. And um, I'm very happy to say that there's been even some publications showing that these things work really well when you take a physical literacy perspective to things.
0: We, Dean, you you hinted at a few things there, which I'd call kind of headwinds. When you talk about this, uh, you know, you might have someone saying, "Well, let me pick one of the ten, get the check mark, move on," or "Oh, we can't do that here because, uh, you know, what about injury and that sort of thing?" And and I know you have done a lot uh, to articulate kind of uh, uh, this equation of a, a neutral concept of uh, mm. the risk of injury and the risk of happiness that. Uh, you know, that kind of relationship. And, you know, two terms uh, that uh, have stuck around here that you introduce is the bubble wrap child and the the free range child. And so maybe if you can talk a little bit about uh, basically, maybe it's time to unwrap some of the the bubble wrap we've put on over the years here.
1: Yeah, that's a a really good point. Um, We've progressed quite a lot um, on the concept of not adequate as possible safety, but not as much safety as we can provide, but adequate safety. And because if you provide too much safety, you actually do secondary harm psychologically, socially, and physically. And so it's about creating what we call adequate safety, getting rid of surplus safety, reducing it down to an adequate level. And then kids grow a lot better in that environment. They learn how to problem-solve. They learn how to make their own decisions. They can judge hazards. Um, And and otherwise, they're looking for us to be told what to do. And so creating an adequate, safe environment, like in the COVID pandemic is a good example. We're not trying to provide complete prevention. That is possible. But we're trying to say adequate safety, not surplus safety. And there's tensions about that. But in schools, we really have to think that through and provide circumstances where we don't kibosh physical activity or physical literacy opportunities for children by saying somebody could get hurt. Kids will get hurt and we need, but did they get hurt in an adequate safety environment? And if not, if you're providing too much safety, surplus safety as we call it, you create these secondary harms and, uh, which are very severe. So, um, what's really important in physical literacy is creating environments where kids can learn how to manage risk themselves. Kids really need to manage risk and say, "I'm in charge of doing that," so that if they're not looking to an adult to make decisions all the time. That's what we want for our children. So, it has to be in a circumstance where, in lesson planning, in environments that we build in and around schools, parks, etc., where there is a what we say a level of challenge for all levels of ability, and that allows a child to enter into a competency progression that they're interested in, and then they can proceed along. And yeah, bumps, scrapes, and bruises can happen, but did we were we prudent? Yes. Okay. We're, but if you clamp down everything, you're setting up a child to fail uh, as they graduate, literally, or even before that.
0: So pre-COVID-19, we had a, a pandemic going on before that called physical inactivity, and and I remember you ta- positioning physical literacy as the vaccine for physical inactivity here. So I'm going to give you a couple phrases, let you pick and choose from these, um, you know whether it be fun, friendship, adventure, uh, adversity, nature. All those kind of, I mean, each one of those is uh, another hour conversation. So that's why I wanted to let you have a wide range there. of How how do you apply this vaccine uh, to the pandemic we had before the pandemic?
1: Yeah. It's a great question, a nice phrase. I I, certainly, the physical literacy uh, uh, anti-vaccine, if you want to call it that, uh, has been, you know, I had 37 trips canceled as a result of COVID. Mm. and all on physical literacy I was going to be talking about and uh but yet we've had a large number of zooms and things like that so i'm happy but i'd say the most important part about how physical literacy can act as a vaccine to physical inactivity is understanding physical literacy as an engine or physical literacy as a cycle or a process and i i'm not a big fan of the definitions of physical literacy i don't typically use them Um, but I believe in them for sure but I 100% believe that physical literacy is a process and where if you develop in children or adults of any age competencies and those competencies can be physical competencies like learning a new movement skill and at the same time as a teacher as a pedagogue as a parent as a coach you instill confidence at the same time as competence that magical two together as opposed to do this skill like this that's competence alone confidence emerges when a child sees that it's fun and challenging and that learning how to do this requires failing a lot and then they don't avoid failure they see failure as part of success so we need to create construct if you will positive challenges for children, where they can develop their competence and confidence simultaneously. And that lesson planning, whether that's in sport, recreation, physical education, what have you, parenting, takes a little special thinking on how to do that. Because if you ask a person, how do you develop a confident person, they go, I don't know. (laughs) But you can, and physical literacy demands, that's part of the engine. Because we know that if you're confident And if you're competent, you see yourself as self-competent. You see yourself as self-efficacious. You believe that you can do things. And there's very strong evidence that drives motivation. That's called self-confidence, driving motivation through what's called self-determination theory. And then you participate more. I didn't say physical activity, but typically it'll involve physical activity. So competence developed at the same time as confidence makes motivated people to participate. More participation, more competence goes round and round. Then if we in schools, in phys ed, sport, when kids are actively participating, we create connection. And this is a really important part. A connection means for some people having a friend, but a connection could also mean, I'd like this group of people that I work with, this walking club, that's my group. It could be a connection to an object like a badminton racket. That's my racket, possessive. It could be a connection to a location or nature. But when we, when we're teachers, school administrators, phys ed teachers, we have to think about when we're creating lesson plans, sessions, that connections don't just mean friendship. Connections can come in many forms, places, groups, objects, things. If you create connections for kids when they participate, we know that it creates what's called relatedness, relatedness mm-hmm. with others. And relatedness drives motivation, which drives participation. And this becomes really interesting because if your school provides many movement opportunities for children through that connection relatedness pathway, you create belonging for everybody, not conformity. Conformity is not belonging. Belonging means this is my place. So creating connections for children is really important. And it's not just creating friends, even just being familiar with other people and other people's abilities is a type of connection that creates empathy, right? Everybody's got a place on the movement skill chain and not everybody has to be equal or love the same things. That connection drives more motivation. So the engine, the physical literacy engine, I want it to be turned on in green for every single child in a school, every pathway facilitated. Because if you break it anywhere, you stop a child from progressing. But you turn that physical literacy on, engine on, and holy smokes, I believe, and there is now evidence, that that leads to more physical activity. So hence why we say physical literacy is the gateway to active participation.
0: Great. Well, you're talking about a lot of successes, but I also know you talk about the equal importance of failures along that pathway as well. Uh, how, how does how do you get that balance right? Because a lot of people, when they don't feel like they can physically succeed in class, or uh, you know, they're not getting uh, the affirmation that that actually, you know, becomes a wall to physical literacy for a lifetime.
1: Yeah, uh, great point. Um, so one of the things we have is when you're constructing a positive challenge, and that term is new as of last November, I published it in an article showing that if you create physically literate kids, you cr- they are associated with resilient children. One of the best predictors, 80% actually, physical literacy, not physical activity, physical literacy creates people who can deal with adversity, overcome challenges.
0: That's right in the social emotional learning wheelhouse right now.
1: That's right. Physical literacy is not just physical, it's mostly psychological and social. So it's like, well, physical literacy is a resilience tool. And the study we published last year was a great one to say, we in schools need to construct positive challenges, which means that it's not all about having positive emotions. That's fake. It's giving me a challenge where I might be anxious about it initially but I can grow through it. And it's a challenge that I can buy into. And then my positive emotions outweigh my negative. Then I can see that I can overcome challenge, which is resilience. And and if I set it up right in the classroom, I also know that if I reach a roadblock, I can look for external resources, a teacher, somebody supporting me, and I learn how to negotiate for those resources and navigate to those resources, that's a resilient person, not just internally resilient. So physical literacy has a big role for creating resilient children. And what you said was really important is when we're teachers and we have a wide range of abilities in a classroom and it's impossible to do it perfectly, but it is critical to use what's called optimal challenge theory and all that means is that I create a level of challenge for every level of ability. I don't have lineups, because lineups is not (laughs) tasks, and I create maybe stations with different levels of ability, and everybody goes from station to station, and everybody's got time on task, they're learning to make decisions on their own, they are learning through movement as opposed to me giving direction through my mouth, and which is sometimes important, but not always, and then what happens is if you use optimal challenge theory, too hard a challenge for some kids, they're out. Too easy, they're gone. Every child needs a challenge. Then, as a teacher, a phys ed teacher especially, I need to have in my pocket what we call plus one. Plus onening means here's the challenge that you're in, Bill, or Betty, Bill and Betty, here's your challenge. Let me plus one you add a little bit more difficulty. And you have to have in your pocket as a teacher, a whole bunch of pluses, right? And as importantly, you see these five kids not participating in the challenge that you've created, you need to have minus ones, right? And you don't tell that to them, but oh, you're gonna do this challenge. And, And further, you can actually add challenges that are plus ones or minus ones so that everybody can enter in to a progression. But you can also do creativity progressions. I'll give you an example you could take a uh, a floor hockey stick and put a puck on it. And then you could carry that around. Then you could put it on your other hand and carry it around. And that would be me, but then I could say, oh, now you have to hop all doing it. Or you make a space where the kids have to move and avoid collision, but still carry the puck. Well, that's a plus one in thinking, that's progression thinking. But a creative way to do it is, okay, You five kids go over there, show me all the ways that you can carry a puck on Mm -hmm. a hockey stick. So that will create ownership of the child in that progression. They'll come up and go, whoa, shoulders will come back. Look how I can do this. You know, on the the opposite side of the curve with a crossover stick. Wow, way to go. You don't take that away from them. Creativity creates ownership. Ownership creates commitment. Commitment creates motivation. So you can do plus one-ing the standard way as a teacher and add a progression, or you can do creative progressions as well, as I indicated. So that gets everybody in your class engaged and moving along a pathway. That is a competency progression that, because kids actually see learning and doing better as fun. Fun is that to them. It's not necessarily smiles. When you're challenged, your smile goes away, but you stop and go, hey, that was enjoyable, right? That's what you want. It's not counting smiles. That's okay. It's about having an enjoyable experience where there's a challenge for you that you're capable of overcoming.
0: So, so Dean, um, you've talked about movement and obviously, uh, that gets to the heart of a lot of people listening today as physical educators and that sort of thing. Um, and you kind of alluded to the diversification of movements uh, you know, having, uh, I think, the term you used was uh, if each movement were uh, a Lego piece, yeah. that you want to make sure that you have as many different pieces because then you can create uh, a whole wide range of, uh, of, 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 masterpieces.
1: Yeah. What, uh, yeah. The, the Lego analogy is still valid. And so we say, you know, in, in physical education programs, and, and I'm going to argue that, schools have to really take the next step of understanding that they're really part of the community in integrated piece of the community, as opposed to this siloed piece. And, and why I say that is that we in physical education in Canada, United States have a land-based physical education curriculum, to be mm-hmm. honest, right? It's land-based movement skills. Many school like in Sweden, they have a swimming component too, mandated. So, and some schools can have a nature piece, an outdoor piece. So, when you think about a child's movement experience in our movement suppressed cultures that we live in, you want them to get Lego pieces in, in land, air, ice, snow, water. Okay, maybe you don't need ice and snow in Indiana, maybe a little bit, but in Canada, we need ice and snow ability. And so, What's really important is that all children are equipped with a whole bunch of Lego pieces so they can choose what they wanna do. And that's a really important feature for for a child, not just in different physical environments, but different social environments. Yeah, but but you're right. I mean, equipping children with uh, different movements and understanding that outside of the school, kids may be engaged on horseback riding or trail running. And understanding and engaging to understanding what they do outside of school is a very important thing for a phys ed teacher so that we can develop as many movement competencies, which isn't just movement skills. It's, hey, I need to walk differently on a slippery surface. Well, that's a skill. I need to learn how to avoid collision. That's a skill. It's not just about throwing a baseball. It's much more than that. So yes, we want to equip children with as many movement skills as you can to create confidence, motivation, and participation further on. And and additionally, children need to be put in contexts that are different social contexts so they feel comfortable moving in front of everybody. The goal should be every child feels comfortable moving in front of every other child. That's the goal. Not by forcing them to, but by feeling comfortable so you don't feel socially inhibited. And, And we don't do a great job on that anywhere in the world and having our children feel comfortable moving in front of each other. And there are secrets to doing that. So it's not just about land, air, ice, snow, water, it's about different audiences too. Moving in front of other children, parents, moving in front of all people of different abilities, right? Sure. Accepting people of different abilities that they have as much right to move as a person who has very high levels of movement ability.
0: But Dean, I I, I know we're running uh, uh, up against our time limit a little bit here, but I, I don't wanna leave uh, because since you were Be- at last in Indiana, uh, I've seen you've been doing some more with some of the uh, sports uh, organizations out there, I think recently with USA Hockey. So physical literacy and sports, where's the connection there,
1: what's going on? Huge, uh, very good question. Um, so many of the athlete development models of the national governing boards uh, in the United States have adopted you know, an ADM that is based on physical literacy. And they're in the early years of evolving that and what that means to the sport pedagogue. I'm gonna call them that, a coach. Sure. And they're trying to really ramp up the pedagogy of the coaches and to include a physical literacy concept for two, two reasons. One, we know that physical literacy enriched athletes are actually athletes that perform at a higher level of excellence. And if you create physical literacy enriched sport, it becomes a quality sport that people don't run away from. So you get you get excellence in participation and excellence in performance at the same time. That would be the secret sauce story and USA hockey is taking it very, uh, ten years ago they had a top the physical literacy but I'd say and they would even agree as a lip service and now they're trying to really drill down into what does that mean. USA lacrosse, USA football, um, many of the big sports are now adopting this. And in Canada as well, in Sweden, Finland, uh, Australia, um, they're seeing physical literacy as a route. I'll give you one big example. I just came off a call with USA hockey, Canada hockey, Mm -hmm. Swedish hockey, and not all at the same time, literally in a row. And what was interesting is they know that many children start to drop out of hockey at age 10 even, and by 21, most players are out of their performance career.
0: Right, well, I mean, we're seeing in a lot of sports, uh, most kids are dropping out of organized uh, engagement in sports by
1: age 12. Absolutely, and that's published, you're right. So they're taking that seriously now, more serious than before. They knew about the fun part, put fun back in sport, that's good, but what they're seeing though and what they're believing is and creating the programs and there's some really good diamonds that have been done to engage kids like you've never seen before. Quality sport doesn't do bad things to people, right? And so each one of them is seeing physical literacy as the means by which to do that through that engine. And so there, I've got a couple of USA hockey webinars where we've talked about this that you can take a peek at. Um, and they're all adopting this and saying, what does this mean to improve the coaching practices? In hockey, sadly, we have drills that have huge amounts of waiting time, who embarrass kids yeah. embarrass kids in front of others inappropriately, uh, create fields of play that are massive to their bodies. So competition restructuring, small sided gaming, using the cycle, not standing in line, all of these things not socially inhibiting kids, many, of these um, hockey countries are now saying we need to do it the right way. That wasn't sport before, that was something masquerading as sport. Now we need to do quality sport that uses the right principles. And I gotta tell you, there are some really good examples now in hockey where they do that. And then you curbate a person first, an athlete second, a player third, which is what we want, right? And that's what we want in Fazad. And if you do that, when they leave their career at 21, their performance career, they can still play hockey. They don't lose their identity. They have a robust identity because they're physically literate and they can find another thing to take a journey on. But if your identity is solely overly specialized into hockey and you're not physically literate and your performance career ends, your identity goes into crisis and you do bad things. So it's it's about preventing these identity crises or minimizing them to give them crisis management, which is becoming physically literate, so I can go from one quest in my life to another with a minimal level of you know management. And so this is vitally important in sport because when they do leave, they often leave and have bad behaviors that they adapt to to their new circumstance, you know. And so I think it's not just hockey; it's in many sports, and we have to. Sure really start talking about physical literacy for life and continuity for life. Yes,
0: great points there. So Dean, I'm gonna make sure we curate a ton of your resources and and get those, uh, the YouTubes that I mentioned and uh, uh, anything else here, uh, references to the diamonds, I think people would love to hear more about that. Anything else you have to share, we'll uh, get that uh, in uh, this landing page here down below us. Uh, Also, the the shareable quotes there definitely share a lot of uh, the great quotes that uh, you had today. Each one of those is a a, a Ph.D. thesis. Uh, So uh, um, anyway, just so appreciate uh, catching up with you. Uh, Definitely want to remind our uh, listeners today that at the bottom, uh, there's a link there for feedback. And when you give your feedback, you can also ask for a certificate of participation for your uh, licensure. Uh, credit hours with uh, for attending this session today so uh, just a, just a ton of gratitude and appreciation for everything you're doing for educators uh, in Indiana across the world uh, keep keep doing this great stuff and I hope our paths cross soon
1: thank you very very much Gary and it's always a pleasure and uh, I'm just uh, I'll, I'll anytime you need me give me a call